With God's help, let me invite you to turn your hearts and direct your attention to the reading of God's word. Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let's go to him together and ask his help. Heavenly Father, God of mercy and grace, Lord, we bow our hearts before the truth and the power and the authority of your word. God, we come asking for your help. God, we come remembering that this book stands apart from every other book in the world. It's not a work of man. You have breathed out its every word. And knowing that, Lord, we want to approach it with humble, sincere, teachable hearts. God, we want to come prepared to submit our lives to what you would say. Lord, help me to be dependent on your spirit and its delivery. Help your people today to be dependent on you as we seek to receive it together, that we would yield ourselves to whatever you would want to do in us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last time we were together in Luke's gospel, we looked at that passage that records Palm Sunday, where you'll remember those cries of adulation and praise were offered up to Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem. He took that last stretch of his journey toward the holy city. You remember how the people followed him shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there was this great joy that swept over the multitude and that was for good reason. For a good long while, uh, we have been anticipating this moment uh, when Jesus would finally make it to the city ever since he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The promised Messiah has finally arrived at Jerusalem in accordance with the scriptures. His journey has come to an end. He has made it to his destination. And what does the Christ do? He weeps. He weeps as he looks at this city. The, the multitude joys to see their king and Jesus mourns. Jesus mourns as he looks over this city. Why does he weep? Why does he shed the tears that he does, and what can we learn about the heart of Christ from this passage? Uh, two particular things are mentioned in this text 
that are at the root of the anguish that Jesus experiences as he looks out over the city. And it is anguish. It is a a deep and profound sorrow signified by that word wept. That word can be used to describe loud, heavy sobbing. What made Christ weep? Well, first we see his longing that they had known the things that make for peace. He says this, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. What peace does he speak of here? He speaks of a peace between God and man. He speaks of a peace between sinful man and an infinitely holy God. A God more holy than we could ever possibly conceive of. He speaks of reconciliation between God the Father and the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The healing of that separation that sin always causes to, to open up between man and God. Whenever we transgress the will of God, whenever we transgress the law of God or uh, fail to live up to the righteous requirement that God requires. And you can see just how, how agonizing Christ's sorrow must have been. I think you can hear the anguish that's bound up in these words because there are things that make for peace. There are things that make for peace between man and God. That was Christ's whole purpose in coming, that he might accomplish the Father's plan and in so doing, make provision so that sinners like us could be reconciled to God, so that we could have peace with the Father, peace with God through faith in the name of his Son. Before Jesus gave up his life on the cross, he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. It was Jesus' peace that he gave to the disciples. Friends, there is no peace outside of Christ. There's no peace to be found outside of the Lord Jesus. No true and lasting peace, that is. There's a kind of peace that many have outside of Jesus Christ, but it's a false peace. It's a kind of peace that can only be maintained in a state of spiritual ignorance, in a state of spiritual blindness, and its end is destruction, the very opposite of peace. But this passage begins by reminding us that God's glorious, saving, reconciling, peacemaking purposes have been disclosed in the person and work of his son. We have not been left to to grope around or try to find our way in the darkness in terms of how we can find peace with God. It has been revealed to us in the the gracious self-disclosure of God the Son. Romans 5 and and verse 1 says it in just one glorious sentence. It says, Therefore, 
since we have been justified, which means since we have been made right, since we have been declared righteous, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the great hope and confession of everyone who puts their trust in the name of Jesus Christ. Everyone who hosts in the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Bible says, who is himself our peace. Jesus Christ himself is our peace. But then we, we have to look at the great tragedy that we see here in Christ's lament that the Jewish people didn't know these things. They didn't know what makes for peace. Jesus stands here on the brink of the city and he surveys this, uh, this, this company of people that will shortly cry out for his death. Uh, he knows full well what lies before him and he weeps. He weeps over their ignorance. And there's a deep irony there because Jerusalem's very name contains the Hebrew word for peace, Salem, where we get the the Hebrew word shalom. It's right there in the name. And had they embraced him, had they received him into their hearts, they would have lived up to that name. They would have lived up to their namesake. But now they've come to this place that the the hope of the things that make for peace, that's another way of talking about God's redemptive purposes in Christ. What does the Bible say here? They're now hidden. They're now hidden from their eyes. They have so hardened their hearts to the truth, to Christ's loving self-disclosure Now they're at this point where they've become blinded. They've been blinded by unbelief. It's it's important to understand what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying here when he says that they're hidden, that they're hidden from their eyes. This is not to say that they, they haven't ever seen the things that make for peace. Jesus is not saying that they've never had an opportunity to see what makes for peace. In fact, on the contrary, the very opposite is true. Notice that it says here, but now they are hidden. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Something has changed. In the the time leading up to this, leading up to the time that the Christ uttered these words, they had had every opportunity to see Christ's grace and his compassion on display. Think about all of the power and the light of his teaching that they had heard on, on so many occasions. His compassion, the tender mercies that he showed so, so regularly, so, so fully and faithfully to the humble and the contrite of heart. He had performed so many miracles. Uh, the apostle John says that were they to be written down in books, John says he supposed the, the whole world could not contain all the books that would have to be written just to chronicle them. Leaders of 
the Jewish people had heard Christ tell uh, people like the woman, you remember who, who wet Jesus' feet with her tears and anointed them with ointment, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Go in peace. So when Jesus weeps over their ignorance, when he speaks about things being hidden from their eyes, brothers and sisters know that this was a willful ignorance on their part. It was a hardness of heart that they had built up over many opportunities to see and to believe and to trust that had been met instead by what? By consistent, willful opposition, rejection, and unbelief. And so Jesus weeps. He weeps over this city that he loves. He weeps over people who would not have him as king. He came to his own, and his own people did not Receive him. You see the heart of the Savior here. It's true that Jesus has a special, a peculiar, peculiar love to those who are elected by the Father, purchased by the blood of his Son. But there's also a loving compassion that we see in him that reaches out to all men. So clearly on display in this text, even to those who are bereft of his grace. It causes him to weep. And this wasn't an isolated incident. Jesus, the Bible tells us, was a man of sorrows, that he was acquainted with grief. On another occasion, he cried out about this same city, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Christ's heart, be assured, is for the lost. Make no mistake about it. His heart is for the lost. Now, Brothers and sisters, what does this ancient lament of our Savior have to do with us? Well, dear ones, first of all, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And first, I would address those of you who are here today with us who perhaps don't know Jesus savingly. You recognize, perhaps, that you would be counted in this lot with Jerusalem and that you don't know the things that make for peace. You've not been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from works, faith alone, in Christ alone. You don't enjoy peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, perhaps the Lord has made it uh, very clear to you that there is this great chasm that exists in your relationship with him. I hope, first of all, that this is an encouragement to you here. As you hear the heart of the one Savior, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, as he weeps for sinners. I hope that that encourages your heart. Would you come to him? 
Would you receive him today as your savior and Lord? He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You may have violated and offended him in the most heinous ways imaginable, unspeakable things. Maybe there are things that have happened in your life, things that you have committed that no one else knows about. God still offers terms of peace with you today through the blood of his son. He offers terms of peace to you and he is the only atonement that your soul needs. Be reconciled to him today. Take him to be your God through faith in his name. You are in what Jesus describes at the end of this text as a time of visitation. You are sitting under the preaching of the gospel even now. And I wonder whether your conscience is moved. I wonder whether you sense the, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit at operation in your heart. If that is true of you, turn then to God. Turn your heart to the living God. Repent and believe the gospel. And he will make you new. He will make you a child of the king. Christ bids you come. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty today? Again, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The fact that you are here today, the very fact that you are where you are today is evidence of God's kindness to you. Did you know that? Do you know that? The Bible says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Today is the day of salvation. Don't fall into line with the Jews. The Bible describes them as stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You see, there were times when the, the, the operation of the Spirit was at work in their heart. And what did they do? They resisted the Spirit. They chose not to believe. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Young people, remember the, day, the creator in the days of your youth. Call on him today. Don't wait for some other time don't, don't deceive yourself into thinking that there will be a more opportune time than today to believe on Jesus Christ. Robert Murray McShane and, and Jonathan Edwards, they both talk about in their accounts of revival that uh, most of those who were converted were young people. McShane said that while young persons have been melted and converted, the tendency always was that those who are older have only grown more hardened in their sin. Who can say what condition your heart will be in if you decline to believe on him today? Who can say what effect that will have on your heart? Next, 
Have you come to know the things that make for peace? Are your eyes wide open to the gulf that has opened up between you and the Lord so that you see your need for the grace and the mercy of God and you've come to believe on his son? Are you numbered today among Christ's fold? If that is true, praise God. Praise God that it is so. If you are convinced, in other words, that you can look at this passage and verse 42 does not pertain to you by the grace of God, not because of anything that you have done, not because of anything inherent in you or any work that you have performed, but because, of God, because God in his mercy has drawn you to himself. You remember what Zechariah said? in chapter one of this gospel. It's been a long time since we've been there, back in chapter one. But to borrow those words, Christ has given light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. He is the one who has guided our feet into the way of peace. If you can say that, inasmuch as that is true, bless the Lord. Amen? Bless the Lord that that is so. Give thanks and praise to the God of your salvation. One old divine says, Christ your Redeemer rejoices with you and over you. Looking at this passage, he says, you may collect it from his contrary resentment of their case who are past hope. If he weeps over them, he no doubt rejoices over you. There is joy in heaven concerning you. Angels rejoice. Your glorious Redeemer presiding in the joyful concert. And should you not rejoice concerning yourselves? Praise God for his mercy and grace. Praise the Lord for his redeeming love toward us, for the eyes that he has given us to see our need and to see likewise his beauty and perfection and sufficiency. Another application, brothers and sisters, see also here a model for the kind of heart that we should endeavor to have toward the lost. Consider what's happening in this text. Take in the whole picture with me. Again, Jesus stands on the outskirts of Jerusalem as one reviled by the religious leaders. He came as one despised and rejected. He enters into this city prepared to be mocked and derided, hated, scorned. He knew what lay ahead. He knew he would be delivered up. He knew the sufferings that would come, would come his way, the griefs that he would have to bear, the blows that he would receive, the cross upon which he would hang all at their hands. And how does he respond? He weeps. He weeps. What a lesson that is for us. I'm almost tempted to use the word rebuke. What a rebuke that is for us. His heart was full of pity toward them. He never grew callous. He didn't retaliate. He didn't return evil for evil. He, he, he didn't return reviling for reviling. He loved them. He loved them as a father loves a prodigal. 
He stood on that hillside and he, he lived out the, the end of Matthew chapter five. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What a challenge this is to us as ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. Isn't that what we are? Isn't that what God in Christ has called us to? What is the impulse of our hearts when the message that we carry and the savior that we love is rejected? How do we respond? Christ mourned. He mourned over those who had sinned so grievously against him. And that compassion and generosity of heart is the paradigm for the, the kind of attitude that we are to pursue as believers in a lost and dying world. In 1787, the hymn writer Benjamin Bedham wrote these words, did Christ or sinners weep and shall our cheeks be dry? Let floods of penitential grief burst forth from every eye. Paul understood that when he said, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul's eyes welled up with tears as he, as he thought about those who not just were neutral or ambivalent, but who walked as enemies of the cross of Christ. When it was revealed to Jeremiah, the, the weeping prophet, that Jerusalem would be besieged by Babylon, the temple was going to be destroyed, countless Jews would be slaughtered. He said, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. J.C. Rowell says that we know very little of true Christianity if we don't feel a deep concern for the souls of unconverted people. A lazy indifference, he says, about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. But a man of this spirit is very unlike David who said, rivers of water run down mine eyes because men keep not thy law. He is very unlike Paul who said, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow of heart for my brethren. Above all, he's very unlike Christ. If Christ felt tenderly about wicked people, disciples of Christ ought to feel likewise. May the Lord open our eyes and our hearts to the spiritual plight of the lost who are all around us. Church, when you see the world rejecting the Redeemer, weep. Weep with the Savior over them. If you find that your heart has become hard or calloused or indifferent to the spiritual condition of their souls, ask the Lord to give you tears. Ask the Lord to soften your heart toward them. I said that there were two things that precipitated the sorrow that the Lord Jesus experienced as he drew near to the city. The first, their ignorance of things that make for peace. And number two, we see the destruction that their faithless, faithlessness brought upon them. 
Look at verse 43, if you will. Jesus begins to prophesy. He says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So there is more than a lament here. There's actually an oracle of judgment that Jesus pronounces here against Jerusalem because of their failure to receive the long-awaited king. So understand this. Their ignorance was a culpable ignorance. It was an ignorance that they were answerable for before the Lord. Jesus issues this word of judgment that foretells total catastrophic destruction, something that Israel is going to see before very long, within the span of just one generation. In AD 70, the Roman general Titus built up a barricade around the city. Uh, The Roman army set up an embankment around Jerusalem. Walls were constructed that hemmed the people in on every side, exactly as Jesus foretold here. Uh, Josephus, writing after the fact, says this. He says, all hope of of escaping was cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. That meant they, they could not bring any food or goods in or out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and infants that were dying by famine. And the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged, the children also, and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows all swelled with the famine and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. For a time the dead were buried, but afterwards when they could not do that, they had them cast down from the wall into the valley beneath. More than a million Jews in all, men, women, and children were killed. Eventually the the city was razed just as Jesus foretold. Now, why did all of this come? Jesus makes the connection explicit. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Israel's destruction is linked directly to their failure to discern what God in Christ was doing in the world. That word, Visitation almost carries a bit of a double meaning here in this text because while on the one hand it refers in the immediate uh, context in the, uh, in, in the near view to the incarnation, to, to all of the hope and the, the promise that that held out to sinful men. Uh, you remember how Zechariah again uh, began that spirit-inspired song. He said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people Israel, it is used in this context in that salvific, uh, redemptive sense. 
But in the Old Testament, the word is almost always used with reference to judgment. A time of visitation is almost always charged with associations, not of the Lord's appearance in mercy, but in judgment. In Isaiah chapter 10, for example, Isaiah prophesies about a time of the Lord's visitation when the Assyrians would have invade as instruments of the Lord's chastisement against his people. And Isaiah says, what will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And a wicked nation, Assyria, served as the rod of God's wrath just in, in the very same way that Rome does centuries later in, in AD 70. In the passage at hand, Israel did not know the time of their, their visitation, which promised salvation to them. And so they're assured they will know a visitation that will carry with it devastating judgment. I just want to highlight the fact that there is no uh, incompatibility or incongruity between Christ's sorrow and his compassion and his love on the one hand and his judgment and his wrath on the other. One cannot be pitted against the other as so many are wont to do. In our world today, we have a savior who is full of perfect love and who executes perfect justice against his adversaries. And what does this teach us? Two points of application from these last two verses. First, those who don't put their trust in Jesus Christ will be indicted for their unbelief. Unbelief in Jesus Christ isn't a neutral thing. Many people look at matters of faith that way. They, they think, well, that's fine for you. It's fine if you want to believe in Christ. If you want to do this Christianity thing, fine. Just don't impose your convictions on me. They, they regard matters of faith and unbelief as an entirely personal conviction, just a personal choice. It doesn't really carry any consequences with it one way or another. Christ regards it as highly consequential. Jesus comes along and says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Every knee must bow and every tongue must confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isaiah 57 verse 21. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Dear ones, it is a spiritually ruinous thing to reject the Lord Jesus. Believe on Christ and believe on him today. There is an urgency to that. 
There's an urgency to that admonition, which we, we see in our text. That's our second lesson. The time of your visitation will one day come to a close. I don't know when that is. Neither do you. Only the Lord knows. But the day of your visitation will one day come to a close. Israel had its time of opportunity. Jerusalem had its day of salvation. Their time of visitation had come and now it had passed. And that same principle holds true for all men. It holds true for all men. Some are convinced that the day of salvation, their opportunity to call on the name of the Lord will never draw to a close. That isn't so. The Bible says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And we know from the rest of God's word that what happened in AD 70 isn't the last time that Christ will visit the world in judgment. We know from the the whole counsel of God's word that what we see in AD 70 is a type of what will one day happen on a cosmic scale when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. This is not the last time God's judgment will be poured out. In other words, I want to read from Revelation chapter 20 uh, and verse 11, a few verses. You're welcome to turn there with me. I'll be reading uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. John says there, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Are you at peace with God, beloved? You are in a time of gospel visitation today. You are at this very moment in a unique and privileged position, just as Israel was. Israel was the recipient of covenant promises Paul says, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. But you know, the, the, Jewish's, the Jewish people's special status as God's chosen people was not equivalent to individual salvation on the part of each one of its citizens. 
Do you see the point that I'm driving at here today? Do you see the connection as it pertains to us in a very similar fashion? We are all here sitting under the preaching of God's word, hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. We know the attendant blessings that come with life in his kingdom. Forgiveness of sins, peace with God, life everlasting. But these things do not come because you're in this room. These things don't come by virtue of our external attachment to the church. They don't come because of religious traditions. They don't don't come because you have Christian parents. They come by faith alone and Christ alone. So today, if you hear his voice, if the things that make for peace are not hidden from your eyes, harden not your heart. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Come to him today. The one whose steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what this passage teaches us about your son. How it shows us his tenderness and his mercy, but also, Lord, how it it warns us not to delay in turning our hearts to him, in availing ourselves of the things that make for peace. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, who is himself our peace. Thank you for the price he paid for our sins. Lord, We want to intercede today on behalf of those whose hearts are darkened, whose minds are hardened, who still have that veil remaining over their hearts. God, I pray that you do a work in their souls today. And we pray that this would be the day of their salvation, that they would turn to the Lord, that the veil would be removed, that they would come to know that freedom and forgiveness and mercy and peace that is found in Jesus. Lord, we know that you are able. God, I I pray also for those who are already counted as sheep of Christ's flock. Thank you, Lord, for the unmerited grace that you have poured out upon us. God, we, we acknowledge that salvation belongs to you. It's all your work. Lord, you were the offended party And yet you took the initiative. You were the one who came and offered terms of peace to us. You reconciled us to yourself through your only begotten son. You made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. I pray, Lord, that we would cling and continue to cling to Christ. Grant us your grace in this hour that we might hold fast our original confidence, firm to the end. I pray that we would glory in him all the days of our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.